Hi, I'm Andrew Burns, and this is the NPM Interconnections Podcast. My guest this week is John Rodriguez, Energy Business Director of Engine Power Plants at Wurzilla. John brings an interesting perspective to the energy transition, arguing that firm, flexible generation from sources like natural gas are the key to unlocking deeper penetration of renewables and the retirement of large-scale fossil fuel plants. Today, he's going to walk us through his thoughts on how natural gas may play into the energy transition, as well as Wurzel's entrance into the storage market and the supply bottlenecks going on there. All right, John, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be it's here. To, yeah, it's an honor to have you. And, um, you know, we, it's, you're a very interesting guy, and I think you kind of bring some interesting perspectives that are going to be interesting to um, you know, some people to, to hear and, and, uh, you know, I know you kind of have a unique background you work for a unique company. So, uh, to kick things off for people who aren't familiar, I wanted to give you a chance to just kind of introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about uh, how you came to be where you are today at, at Wurzilla. Sure. So yeah, my name is John Rodriguez. I'm, uh, about 20 years in the, in the electrical generation business industry. Uh, actually did most of my career in the what we call the high-speed world which would be kind of you think about brands like caterpillar cummins those types of engines which um typically are done in an emergency standby type type of um, application where you know the power goes out and um some engine generator um you know near your facility or your house would actually you know turn on and, and then provide power so that's where I spent most of my career and really learned the uh, the engine side of the business as far as how they work and and then additionally the power side how power is 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 managed and controlled and I was working with Cummins at the for um, um, for a few years and um, running their gas engine sales business in North America and I got a call from Wurzilla, which is a Finnish company. And to be honest, as a mechanical engineer and kind of an industry wonk, I had a total crush on this company for a long time. They make uh, utility scale equipment, utility scale uh, application, meaning utility scale, meaning just larger installation footprints as far as generation capacity and capabilities versus the kind of commercial uh, world that I had, had spent so much time in. So when Wartzilla called, I was uh, extremely excited and um, even more excited when I learned about the role. Um, I was actually uh, contacted, interviewed, and hired all during COVID virtually. And um, spent about six, seven months before I met any colleague. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've been uh, kind of describing myself as a COVID baby, COVID baby. Uh, because it took me, uh, and I was I was working for a company for quite a while before ever really uh, meeting anybody. Um, but now that I've um, been able to travel and, and have uh, many uh, interfaces um, with with co- colleagues and, and visiting our plants around North America and our factories in in Finland, um, it's been uh, just a tremendous journey for me and, and such a, a great company to join. Uh, we have a tremendous um, um, message and meaning as a company. I think it aligns um, extremely well with, with kind of the overall electrical industry trend towards, um, you know, allowing renewables to um, really be the, be the future power source for humanity. And um, Wurzilla is in a, in, a, in a great position to help that along and be a, 
be a solution provider as that transition um, continues to um, accelerate and, and, and hit more and more um, of a high percentage of generation capacity in the US. But then of course, as the rest of the globe um, does the same or, or follows a similar path, you know, we'll be there, uh, there as well. Of course, right now, Europe and the US are by far the leaders in some of these metrics, but um, we're certainly seeing a lot of activity in other parts of the world as well and are there to support those, those efforts. Sure. Yeah, I know that uh, Wurzel is a, is a truly global company. And, uh, you know, I imagine that you, um, as, as travel has kind of opened up, I imagine that you have been quite busy. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that's very, uh, you know, busy and, and interesting and exciting time for you. But, um, you know, uh, for, for those that may be unfamiliar with, with Wurzel, I wanted to kind of uh, focus on, um, you know, Wurzel's activity in the U.S. market, which I know is a little bit uh, unique compared to some of the other areas where Wurzel is active. So just, just tell us a little bit about uh, uh, Wurzel's activity um, in the U.S. And, and kind of the things that you guys are, have been working on. Sure. I would describe the activity in the U.S. and the energy sector as, as established, but not but not a household name, if you will. Um, still a little bit of an unknown name and, and unrecognizable to a lot of people that are even in the industry. Sure. So uh, Wurzel has really entered the U.S. market as recently as the 1990s um, with, with natural gas fired power generation uh, solutions. And, and, and those solutions uh, meaning a large recip or reciprocating engines. So think of your car, um, you know, your gasoline fueled car, a very similar uh, engine, just um, bigger than your car. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, and that, that equipment then making power at, at high clips uh, to the point where they help utilities generate the power that is used across the grid. And that, um, that path um, was, was growing and the, and the installation uh, um, you know, fleet, if you will, installed base in the U.S. has been increasing ever since that time. And then in the um, mid-20-teens, uh, Wurzilla identified energy storage as a, you know, nascent and, and, and you know, explosive growth um, business in specifically in North America, in the U.S. And then, of course, you know, some other strategic places around the world. But in the U.S., in a very uh, um, big way, you know, a, a, a demand driven uh, market that that really is is scaling and um, seeing, I think, you know, a lot of development um, over the last uh, 10 years. And so to enter that market, Wartzilla bought a company called Greensmith, which is based in uh, Emeryville, California, right outside of San Francisco. That was in, I believe, 2017. And really, um, Greensmith wasn't a, a small player at the time, but they certainly weren't operating at scale, not utility scale. And um, over the last um, five years, since acquiring that company, Wurzilla has been able to, to um, help grow that, that business into the probably the number three global supplier, certainly number three in the U.S. Um, there's a couple other large companies, uh, namely Tesla and Fluence which have been able to deliver um, more batteries than, than we have um, over that same, over that time period, but we're a strong number three and, and certainly um, spending a lot of effort and time to continue to try and serve the U S market. And um, 
and build our production capacity. Because at this point, um, even before the supply chain crisis that kind of um, you know, reared its head in early 2022, we are, you know, the industry I'd say as a whole has been capacity constrained, meaning manufacturing capacity. There's been more demand than really the, you know, the industry has been able to uh, meet from a capacity standpoint. And um, we're working tirelessly to continue to find um, additional, you know, suppliers and, and contract manufacturers to help build our solutions. Of course, along the line, we're also trying to make sure that those solutions are designed and, and um, 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 brought to market in an in a optimized way to, to limit the amount of on-site installation time. And, and so we've got the most efficient use of, of precious materials such as cabling and, and, um, and, and of course, construction time, you know, electrical contractors, you know, the various trades that put these systems together. So the energy storage market uh, in the United States is certainly um, an exciting space for us. Uh, we have um, dedicated sales teams and, and product development teams and all the different functions that bring those solutions to bear and um, have certainly had uh, a record year in 2021 as far as publicly announced uh, projects. Sure. Um, typically in that industry, the, um, the specifics of the customer are, are not uh, publicly shared based on their their um, requirements or preference. So I'm not at will to share those, but but um, installed base and, and, and our backlog is in the you know the, um, in the more than a gigawatt hour um, kind of class. I don't have exact numbers on the top of my head, but sure. but many many um, um, hundreds and, and thousands of megawatt hour of installed battery capacity. Um, I'd say that the kind of the um, um, some of the hot spots as far as the U.S. have been certainly uh, Texas in the ERCOT market, and then additionally California, and we've seen it actually on both sides of the border. So we have projects um, going into California, uh, but then additionally some in Mexico that then um, have transmission lines that connect to the California grid and. Um, um, the IPPs and developers that that put those projects in have found some some locations and, and of course some interconnect locations to uh, to efficiently and profitably supplement the California grid with with projects based in Mexico, which has been interesting. That is interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it, you know, you mentioned the the supply chain issues that 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 storage is facing, and I think that's really interesting because um, obviously, you know, as I imagine you are probably aware, just as being a member of the industry, like a lot of the focus right now on the supply chain and the issues are going toward the solar side, right? Where um, they've got that, uh, the federal investigation and the tariffs and it's, uh, you know, it's a big mess, no doubt about it. Um, but I think uh, as, as a result of that, people are kind of overlooking the, the supply issues that are going on on the storage side as well, as you mentioned, that have really, um, you know, it's been sort of exacerbated in 2022, but it really kind of stretches back to, to before that even. And and so I, I, I was kind of curious to, to um, get your take on, on just kind of what, what the, what's at the root of that and, and, and kind of where you think, how long do you think this is going to um, be an issue for the industry? Are you kind of approaching it as a, as a short-term issue, as I, I think a lot of people are sort of hopeful about? Or are you, are you kind of viewing it as like uh, just kind of a, a measure of where we are and it may be something that you just kind of have to take into consideration going forward, um, you know, whenever you're putting together storage installations? Yeah, it's a very good question and an interesting topic. I think um, 
kind of similar on on another part of our business on the engine power plant side of the business we we talk a lot about hydrogen fuel and kind of like how does this future look and i'll equate that sort of that sort of concept to how battery storage has been developing so we always think about the power sector in a in a in a isolated view but things that affect our sector also affect other industries and namely the one that has has greatly affected battery storage is the transportation sector, namely electric vehicles. Sure. And the, 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 the scaling of the electric vehicle sector, not just Tesla, but of course, a lot of other major OEMs have created large ambitions for battery uh, powered vehicles. And what's happened is the electric vehicle demand curve has gone so drastically up that the amount of overall energy storage consumption is actually small in comparison mm -hmm. from a capacity standpoint and in, in, in batteries they, they talk about you know mostly gigawatt hours and so you know you'll see a press clipping around um, from ford or another major oem putting a, a battery factory in in a certain state and it's going to create you know, 75 gigawatt hours per year of, of output. And some of these factories are going to be put online in 24, 25, 26, those sorts of timeframes. But of course, this build out has been going on and there's been enough of a, a, of a demand spike from the electric vehicle sector. And then of course, the, the, the battery storage sector continuing to try and, and, and um, grow as well that these, these two things coming together has caused the actual base materials that go into making these batteries, the raw materials, uh, those prices go through the roof. And, and it's become a, a pretty um, um, you know, volatile situation um, where you know, a lot of these projects have, have, been, have, been, have been, I guess, um, calculated and, and analyzed based on forecasts from a lot of industry uh, database type study groups where they show, you know, the battery storage cost of, of battery capacity on a kilowatt hour or gigawatt hour basis declining, continuing to decline, decline, decline. And now here we ha what happened in 2021, 2022 is that decrement curve has had a sharp correction. And now all of a sudden, uh, when you were expecting to be able to replace batteries in year 10 of an asset at a certain cost per a decrement curve, now that decrement curve has had a reset, if you will. So um, um, it definitely is, is impacting a lot of the economics and the way that the developers and the utilities that, that buy these systems, you know, really analyze their opportunities. But, if, you know, when you asked about what does the time duration look like for this, this, this supply crunch, it looks pretty long-term because of the velocity in the electric vehicle sector. Right. So, you know, it, you, there aren't going to be new lithium mines opening up every week. Those are very long-term development projects and they, you know, have long permitting processes to, to, uh, to get the, you know, the permission to actually open a mine, much less actually start extracting lithium or any of the other, you know, component raw materials that make up these technologies. So what we're expecting to see is potentially some various, you know, um, additional chemistries might come out that 
will start to compete more, more strongly with lithium ion because lithium carbonate is one of the raw materials that is causing these cost um, you know, increases in the battery segment of the, of the business. Um, so we'll see what happens, but um, that's certainly something that in the industry we feel you know, might be a, uh, at a minimum sort of a midterm sort of thing that's gonna take a few years to get back to pre-2021 pricing. Um, hopefully it can, it can improve before then, um, but with the strong demand in electric vehicles and the strong demand continuing in electric uh, energy storage systems, it's certainly a little bit hard to, I guess, reason that it will come down very fast, very quickly. Um, of course, the uh, conflicts around the world, well, the conflict, I should say, the one in Ukraine with Russia, um, where Russia attacked them, that definitely just compounded some of the things within the um, um, industry. But uh, I mean, in, in, a, in, in a sort of, of course, unexpected way, the consequences from certain things when they happen, it's, it's, you know, it takes us a while to realize, you know, what's happening. But specifically in Ukraine, there's some specific uh, neon gas, for instance, is produced in Ukraine uh, at a, a dominance, a dominant <laughs> amount is, is sourced from Ukraine. And of course, I'm not exactly sure if all those factories are shut down or what their status is, but the, the supply of, of neon gas is a, is a raw material for the semiconductor chip industry, which of course in the um, electric energy storage uh, market or the, the battery energy storage market, there's a lot of semiconductors doing different things. And so those sorts of, of supply disruptions and, and, and component um, um, availability issues also affect how fast these, these projects can get built and, and, and how much they cost. So um, it's not only the batteries, but also some of the ancillary systems, the power electronics, the controls, other various things that, that make these systems work that are under pressure. Sure. Yeah, it's a really interesting time and it's going to be fascinating to kind of track, you know, how, how that situation evolves and, you know, whether new chemistries, as you mentioned, start coming into the equation. Um, I imagine that companies that are, you know, kind of investigating those are, are you know, really uh, putting their best foot forward, uh, you know, with the, the opportunity that they have now. But um, it'll be definitely something interesting to track. And, and I'm sure that uh, you guys will be um, evolving as well as, as we work through that. So, um, you know, other areas, you, you, we, we kind of mentioned the bottlenecks with storage and, and we're, we're finding also just with the um, overall energy transition with the two renewables, we're, we're finding some bottlenecks in some areas, particularly in, in areas like KISO and, and um, you know, PJM and, and areas that just have um, this huge backlog of, of renewable projects. And, um, you know, but when you talk about the energy transition, I think that there is this um, sort of rush to, um, you know, trying to get everything transitioned as, as quickly as possible, bring on as many renewables as possible. But, uh, you know, I, obviously we, the first time I heard about you and, and was made aware of you was at, was at Platts in Vegas. And you had some interesting perspectives uh, on, at the panel there, kind of talking about the overall energy transition and kind of what you think is required to sort of Get us to that next step. So I wanted to give you the chance to sort of walk us through that and, and maybe talk about how, um, you know, wh where you think we are in the energy transition and what you think is, is necessary to get us uh, moving forward beyond the, the bottlenecks that we're seeing right now. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, the uh, we have a, a campaign out there called uh, Front Load Net Zero. And um, if people 
Google search that, I'm sure they would come up with some materials that we produced and released, trying to really educate the industry on, um, you know, the current situation in certain geographies, certain, you know, grid systems, and then what, how we see the needed steps for, for really achieving that, that path to net zero. And, and we do this in a very studied way, a very academic way, actually, um, by having done uh, utility scale grid models for many countries. And we do this in a, in a, in a, an open way, in a, in, in a technology agnostic way, but really in a way to try and help help this whole, this whole energy transition. And then of course, selfishly, we're trying to make sure we have the right products to help that transition occur. And then how, of course, are we gonna, you know, as a company um, work within that, in that transition and try and, and be a big player. And what, what, we're, what we've seen in these models and what these grid system models have yielded is a very similar story across many different countries and, and geographies and particular situations. So of course, by geography, you might have different um, you know, attractiveness when it comes from a renewable energy standpoint. Maybe you can do offshore wind, or maybe you can do onshore wind. Maybe you have great solar you know, um, generation capabilities depending on your geography and of course, sun angle, all those sorts of things. How much land do you have? All those sorts of things. Maybe you have hydropower. So, but, but long story short is regardless of those, um, those types of um, um, dynamics, for the most part, what we see is that there's a, a general sense in the industry, a general understanding. And then there's what we think the models bear as far as a more, um, um, a faster and more economical and a, and a more robust way to actually achieve the end goal than what the common mentality is. And what the common mentality is, is basically add renewables, add renewables, add renewables, and then, you know, retire coal assets and other, um, you know, fossil burning um, central station power stations as quick as possible, even, even, even nuclear, of course, in, in, in a lot of places. And that's a, 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 a an okay approach and it's gotten us quite far in, in geographies like like Texas and in California to take, kind of pick on two of the large ISOs that you mentioned. Sure. Um, they both have pretty high uh, renewable penetration rates. But what what's kind of missing from that formula is the actual requirement of switching the base load. And what I mean by that is for many, many years, the electric power industry served with with some, some pretty significant baseload resources. And these are those big central station power stations that utilities have built in the US you know, in, a, in a big way that generate a large amount of power. But what they do is they run consistently at the same level, give or take very little variability. They take a long time to start, they take a long time to stop, and if you wanna restart, there's a, there's a long cycle. And what I mean by long, I mean, some of these plants might take a day to, to fully get going there's there's such an amount of thermal mass in their process to heat up all this water to turn to steam to turn to to turn you know turbine blades to make electricity and um, those baseload resources that term baseload was really you know I think a, a good term because it just describes the way they operate you put a, a huge plant at, at a certain power output and you just run and it goes and goes and goes and what what, what is needed at some point is to allow the renewables to be the baseload. 
and to allow the, the renewables to really you know, maximize the amount of output that they create and put it into the grid and make use of it. But what's occurring in the, in the, in the, the model I described earlier, which is just add renewables, add renewables, you know, um, retire uh, baseload assets you know, as fast as you can. What, what's occurring is that the utilities, of course, have a, a public you know, charter that requires them to have um, you know, re reliable and, and resilient uh, power supplies. And so what happens is they have to keep so many baseload resources on the system. Those old thermal, I use the term, the term thermal here, meaning on the, on the, in, the, in the process itself, they're, they're inherently inflexible because they rely on steam and, and, and large amounts of, of thermal mass to, to operate and to create the output that they, that they create. But because of that, they're very inflexible and you really need to, to keep them running in a steady state to, to, to make them um, last and to, to have efficiency. But what happens is they have to keep so many of their big baseload plants online is that when the renewables are, are really creating a, you know, a bunch of opportunity for energy in a place like California, midday, the sun is high, the sun is high there's all this you know, rooftop solar, and then of course the big utility solar plants in the desert, they have to basically do what's called curtailing which means that they have to turn the solar off. And now you basically have a lost opportunity. And the reason they have to curtail the, the, the renewables is because those baseload plants cannot turn down effectively. Or if they, if they turn them off, it's gonna take so long to put them back online that you would put yourself in a situation of risk in the evening hours when that same solar that is available in midday is obviously not available you know, in the evening or into the nighttime. So what we talk about is the transition of the baseload from the traditional large central station thermal plants to the renewables. Well, how do you do that in a, in a, in a, in a common sense and in, in an aggressive way in, in today with existing technology? And the answer is you actually can use what are called balancers or, or flexible uh, firm capacity generation. That's what we feel is the best path forward. And what that can look like, you know, of course we, we, we create, we manufacture and deliver reciprocating engine um, power plants, which are extremely good at doing exactly what is required to allow those renewables to move up and down. The, the, the technology that we bring to the marketplace can start extremely fast, can ramp up to load extremely fast. I mean, within minutes, not day or, or half a day. I mean, we're talking, you know, a handful of minutes to get hundreds of megawatts online or on, in the reverse offline. And then you can turn them off. You can turn them back on multiple times a day. There's all this inherent flexibility because of the way the machines operate. Now in the, in the utility sector, they still call our, our class of generation thermal, which to me is a, is a, is a, it's doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't describe it accurately. But it just is the way our industry is in, 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 in the United States. The utility industry calls anything that burns fossil fuels thermal. But I happen to actually disagree with that. I think because we're just using fossil fuels to create combustion and then in a simple cycle manner, don't have any thermal component to our cycle, we're inherently flexible beyond what a typical um, baseload uh, plant would look like. Now, there are some other technologies that can compete with us. 
in this space from a technology perspective. Um, the gas turbine industry has some, some um, types of turbines that can, can do um, similar things um, in, in, with similar um, um, behavior, but I would, there are some, we, we feel our, our technology is actually the, the optimal fit because of the, we actually have the highest flexibility and, and the ability to start stop just a little bit better than, than our, our friends that, that manufacture and deliver gas turbines. They might want to argue about that, but um, we feel that we're, we're uniquely positioned to take care of that part of the market. Um, so that's what we think is really the, the kind of the, the, the missing piece, if you will, in today's um, just um, industry understanding is not only do we need to add renewables at an extremely high rate, we need to add energy storage as well to extend the viability of those renewables because you can, of course, you know, basically solar shift, right? You can take your solar load from midday and, and, and put it in batteries and then, and then use it in the evening hours, but you're still at some point, you know, had the requirement to have some firm flexible, firm capacity available in case, you know, that, that other, those other energy sources are out because um, I, one, one thing that I, I've, I've grown um, to see a lot is in power generation um, build plans, utilities and, and magazines and people that talk about these things will put battery storage in the generation class. They'll say, oh, we have so much solar, we have so much wind and we have all this battery, but, but batteries are not generators. They are just shifters, right? They can, they can store energy and then, and, then, and then deliver it later. So those batteries, if, if there hasn't been sun for a few days, if, you know, if the wind stops blowing for you know, an extended amount of time, the batteries are obviously gonna run out and you have to have something there to, to, be, to be there. And so um, um, we feel um, just extremely passionate about how firm flexible resources can help make that transition actually occur put the renewables from a, a load follower or a demand follower to those baseload resources into the baseload position and then let these firm flexible assets be the balancer. And so um, that's really the big, the big change. And then what, what can happen down the road when the um, uh, renewables are the baseload and you can start to build to the point of renewable excess, even above baseload, is now you start making future fuels with the excess renewable energy. You can make hydrogen, you can turn that into ammonia, you can turn it into synthetic methane, you can do all these things with that, that green fuel. Now you can take those same reciprocating engines or potentially other technologies that are burning natural gas today, or, or you know, and you can actually have them run on these other things, sure. these green fuels. And now you, that's how you get to the last 10 percent. That's how you get all the way to net zero is that you actually take those firm, those balancers, you offset their, their, their natural gas consumption with a green fuel. And now your entire cycle, if it's, if it's, um, you know, operating all the way, you've got your renewable baseload. And then when, when there's a, when there's excess renewables, you're creating fuel, that fuel then provides the, uh, the combustion materials to those, those assets that are going to balance the load and be there when, when needed. And, um, and you have a carbon free generation uh, world. And, uh, and that feels um, pretty far out there, I'd say, um, some of these things to scale at the, at the scale of just the United States is, is tremendously um, high, it's a huge, we have a very big electric grid in the US, thousands, 
tens of thousands of, of megawatts. Um, so it's going to take a while to get there, but we feel the building blocks are in place today to put us in position to, to get there and to uh, have that um, amount of renewables continue to grow without causing disruptions in, in the overall grid and to continue allowing them to take over that baseload position. Sure. And, uh, you know, obviously you guys have, have uh, found some success with this, you know, Wurzula has, you know, I think we talked about that we got, um, what, 70 plants or so uh, in the U.S. right now. And obviously that build out continues. Um, and, and so I'm interested in, in another thing that we've sort of discussed, which is that in, in some specific areas, you're finding that um, you're finding it difficult to get, uh, you know, whether you know, approval or even like siding on, on some of these uh, uh, plants, just because there is this kind of um, automatic like knee jerk reaction, right. To, to, you know, pull, push against uh, any sort of new fossil fuel generation. And so I wanted to, to get your, your thoughts on that. And also just sort of uh, um, talk about if you think that, that those attitudes may start to shift with, with the issues that we're seeing in places like Kaiso and PJM and, and ERCOT, of course, where, um, you know, they're kind of starting to, to run into, I guess, what you'd call reliability issues, right, already. Um, and we're, we're nowhere near the goals that, that these, these places have set. So obviously a lot going on there, but just sort of walk us through that situation and how you, how you see that evolving. Yeah, so as you mentioned, we have a pretty good-sized footprint in the United States. It would be today all natural gas-fired um, equipment. So over um, around three gigawatts of generation capacity. And, and there certainly are geographies in the United States that do have a, a resistance to continue to think about investing in new natural gas plants. There's a, uh, you know, a, a thought that any new fossil fuel plant is then going to net in the end as a bad thing for the journey that we're describing here. But I guess what we're trying so hard to do is to educate these areas because they are the ones that are kind of pushing the renewable penetration um, you know, levels to the point where they need to change their grid in a, in a significant way to have these balancers available to allow those renewables to function as needed as the new baseload. And, but what we're seeing is that, that the perception of any new natural gas um, generation resource inherently, you know, slowing down the transition to net zero. Uh, you know, what we've, what we've proven through our grid modeling studies is that it's actually a fallacy and, and actually the, we can accelerate the renewable penetration. We can accelerate the path to net zero with putting in flexible firm capacity burning on that natural gas today. And then of course, those resources, having those assets, having the capability to transition to future fuels when those are readily available and commercially available and make economic sense. So, um, you know, we feel very bullish that the story and the data that we, we present and show to regulators and stakeholders in the industry, um, you know, really do open up eyes. And we, of course, um, are hoping that then that level of understanding of, hey, these new natural gas resources actually aren't harming the path to net zero, they're actually accelerating it. And how do we, you know, how do we as an organization, an organization that makes equipment that burns natural gas, how do we do that? And I, you know, I would say that, you know, participating in, in talks like this, you know, we want to get to the, all the different audiences 
that that our our stakeholders in the electric industry, electric utility industry in the United States and globally, and really you know have these open dialogues about. What is the real common sense way to do this? What is the real low cost way to do this? What is the real reliable way to do this? And what gets us on the fastest path to net zero? So that's what we're saying. That's what we're trying to, to educate the industry and, and policymakers on. Uh, I would say that it's a, definitely a, a, a challenge um, and we're, we're dedicated to do it. And we, we are so confident because we have the, you know, the, the, the analysis and the, the know-how, and, and then of course the ability to bring the solution to the market as well to help them on that journey. And so um, we're just um, we're honestly excited and, and energized by I guess some of the um, feedback we've been getting recently from even some of the you know areas that that historically have been extremely you know close-minded about about new natural gas resources. I think certain retirements. Um, certain, you know, grid realities are starting to show uh, at the CAISO level um, and, and some other, you know, large, uh, you know, um, electric sectors where, um, you know, the, the reality of just adding more solar and batteries and maybe some wind, you know, it's showing in the models and the firm capacity requirements that these, these areas have. That there's going to be shortfalls, and that you know what's the alternative is is potentially leaving, you know, fossil burning assets online much longer than hoped, and then and then inherently those those assets which maybe are 25 years old today, you know, those are generally going to be very inefficient, and there's and they're and generally again they're going to be extremely inefficient in a balancing mode, meaning they have to start and stop and move up and down and 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 and, and balance those renewables. So um, we're starting to see cracks in the armor, if you will. We're starting to see, you know, people really saying, holy cow, man, our models are showing what you've been saying. And, oh, your model happens to come out with very similar results to what we've seen. And, hey, you know, what does that look like? So um, um, I think that answers your question about, about that. So, um, yeah, we're, we're certainly seeing resistance, but at the same time, I think some of the realities of the the current situations in some of these areas are are, are agreeing with our synopsis on on the overall uh, condition of things. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see uh, you know and track how those attitudes shift and and sort of uh, you know where you guys are able to to make some headway. I will. I, there's one last thing I wanted to touch base with you on uh, before we before we end today, and um and and it has to do with hydrogen. Um, like. Uh, I think in some places we're seeing, I think the realization of sort of what you're talking about where you need a supplement for the renewable generation. And I think a lot of people are sort of already jumping to hydrogen, right? Uh, like we were at Platts, for instance. I mean, huge talking point, right? Like like every talk, you know, there was, there was hydrogen everywhere, right? So I wanted to get your your kind of your perspective on on where we are with hydrogen and like the, the role that you think it that it might play and uh, just, just sort of how it fits into to sort of this, this um, strategy for the energy transition as, as, you're, as you're discussing it. Sure. So there's definitely a role, at least in the uh, path to net zero, the front loading of net zero that we talk about in our, our, our communications to try and educate the industry around how to make that last 10% or 15% happen. How do we decarbonize not just almost all the way, but all the way? 
And so we, we do see there's a validity to the need for some sort of green fuel um, to be that last, to, to fill that last bit, because we just, um, unless there's some sort of, you know, tremendous breakthrough with, with long duration batteries of some kind or, or some other kind of long duration storage that can get you through weeks of, of you know, electrical demand, we see a future fuel as a, an extremely viable and, and um, you know, common sense way to take assets you can put in today and then run them in 15, 20 years from now on those things. Now, what I see as far as the viability and how fast this can potentially get introduced into the marketplace may sound a bit bearish, I guess, um, or, or negative, but it's based on, I guess, some real, you know, common sense. And, and, and what I'd like to, I guess, kind of compare it to is what we, what we talked about earlier having to do with the, the scaling of the, of the electric battery industry globally is that it's not just electric power generation when you're talking about hydrogen. There are many industries that emit carbon that could potentially offset that, that emittance by using a hydrogen or hydrogen derivative. So think, you know, heavy duty industrial processes like making steel or cement or all sorts of different processes in the petrochemical industries that, that today rely heavily on, on natural gas or oil um, type type fossil fuels that could potentially, of course, do, do different things in the future. And the reason I bring up those specific types of industries is because you think about how do you make steel and how, you know, how does that process work? Well, it's a continuous process. You know, you're heating up very hot temperatures, large amounts of these materials, making steel, doing all these things. So you're going to be consuming a very large amount of whatever that fuel is to create those things. Um, for a pretty long duration. And when I compare that to the future of what these firm flexible generation assets have to do to balance the renewables, what we see in our modeling is that the capacity factor, or the, basically the amount of time you would run them, if you think about 24-7, you know, 365 is 100%, we're talking about maybe 15% of the time you'd be running these, these, these assets. And so does it make sense for the, one of the very first places for a hydrogen um, or similar future fuel infrastructure to be built? Would you want to put it into an industry, and I'm sorry, into an application that inherently is going to run only about 15% of the time? And I, I kind of think that the answer is going to be no. I think the answer is going to be you're going to take that, those valuable at you know molecules and you're going to put them into continuous duty or very high emitting other processes make it maybe maybe an industry maybe transportation um, or other things where it's more of a continuous duty application so another another big part of wartzilla um, is is the the maritime industry marine right so basically putting engines into large vessels and those those engines run basically around the clock right when the when the vessels are, are moving and, and so, you, you know, that industry wants to decarbonize too. And they, they're talking about taking hydrogen and either making methanol or ammonia or potentially some other derivative in a, in a liquid format that they could bunker, that they could put on a ship as a liquid fuel and, and power themselves across the oceans. And so, you know, maybe hydrogen would, would make more sense to go there first. And when I'm saying 
about the order, what I'm, what I'm kind of getting at is I think that power generation, as these things play out, will show with that limited capacity factor requirement that it will probably be down the pecking order and will take a little bit longer. I guess one thing that, that potentially could accelerate that would be policy and, and other things, you know, that would then supplement or, or, or force hydrogen to be used um, quicker than it than it naturally would be in a in a completely open capitalistic way, and that could potentially occur. But um, um, even then, you know, we just see the volume of hydrogen required, um, and then of course where the where the industry sits today, and and then all the projections what it might look like in twenty thirty or thirty five. The the amount of hydrogen still um, even even with that low capacity factor predicted is still uh, monumental. And then of course, the, there's the all the different logistical challenges of, of where you'd produce that hydrogen versus where you'd consume it. And how do you get those things connected? Hydrogen is obviously a, 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 a gaseous format, you know, in ambient conditions. So even, even taking it down to a liquid form is, is from what I understand, kind of unrealistic because it, it doesn't freeze, you know, or go to liquid until extremely low temperature and, pre and high pressures to the point of being probably doesn't make sense. So you can only really compress it, which then of course limits its ability to be transported uh, via truck or other types of vessel. So pipelines, you know, we could potentially reuse natural gas pipeline infrastructure, potentially um, upgrade it or, or, or change it or build new. But of course, you start talking about building pipeline infrastructure, that's going to take a long, long time. Yeah. So um, again, it's a, it's a very long uh, road. And, and, um, but what's interesting, I, at least I think for, for people that are, are very much, like you said, fixated on, on hydrogen being the solution, is that we've got solutions today. We can burn high volumes of hydrogen in, in, in existing equipment today. We have, we have quite a bit of capability in our machines as of today that we can deliver. And even machines we sold 10 years ago can use, can use high volumes of hydrogen uh, in, in their combustion process already today. And we're going to have products and capabilities to, to continue the use of those future fuels going forward. So we feel very confident about the fact that our assets can represent future-proof solutions for these customers that, of course, if they're going to spend tens of millions of dollars building infrastructure. They want it to last 15, 25, 35 years. And we feel very good about the fact that, that our, our solutions can represent that long-term investment. Right on. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's an interesting time. Like, like we've said, and I think, uh, you know, there's, it's sort of a matter of like playing the long game versus playing the short game. And, you know, there's, there's all these different uh, components and, and all these different thought processes. And so it's going to be interesting to, to, sort of track that as it continues. And it's great to talk to, to somebody like you that with an interesting perspective and, and, and someone that uh, certainly is uh, moving the dialogue forward. So I appreciate you taking the time today. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to, to staying in touch as, as these, uh, these things that we discuss continue to develop. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure.